Welcome to the Heroic Minds Podcast, where we uncover the heroic stories of individuals battling through adversity and rising to the top of professional sport, business, and life. Uncovering the characteristics, the secrets, the tactics to become the hero of your own story, because it is adversity that maximizes human potential. Welcome back to the Heroic Minds Podcast. On today's episode, we have Jim Moss, CHO of Plasticity Labs. That's CHO as in Chief Happiness Officer. He's the co-founder of Plasticity Labs, a program or an organization that works to improve workplace culture and employee well-being and uses neuroscience, behavioral psychology to move into organizations and apply their knowledge to improve the workplace. This all started one day when Jim was playing professional lacrosse and training for professional lacrosse and one day woke up and believed he was having a stroke. He later realized that this paralysis was actually from a rare autoimmune disease and he had to relearn how to walk. And he realized through his recovery just how the mood or the emotions he wanted to welcome into his mind or the mindset that he had 100% related to how well he was recovering or how well he was performing. And he's now taken that idea and put it into science and taken neuroscience to show this and display it for people to see that if we venture through adversity and if we learn these skills, we improve our mood, we improve our output, etc, etc. So Jim's story is pretty cool and, and one that I really look up to because he went from sport, playing in the OHL, playing for Team Canada, playing in the National Lacrosse League, tons of accolades in both sports and then stepped out of the game and is now quite far from the game and doing something he never thought he was going to do. The moral of the story today is mood drives performance. As always, before we get going, remember to check out truelocal.ca. You go on truelocal.ca, you pick out all the meat you want. It shows up to your doorstep in a box on dry ice Last for four days, so if you're not home for four days and that meat showed up, it stays frozen solid for four days, individually packaged, take it out of the box, throw it in your freezer, eat incredible meat whenever you want. It's a really cool program, great company. Check them out, truelocal.ca, T-R-U-L-O-C-A-L.ca. If you want to test them out for the first time, use my discount code HEROICMINDS25, all capital letters, to get $25 off a regular size box or $10 off a personal size box. All right, here we go. I don't really play. Like, do you play at all? Yeah, see, I haven't really felt the need. I really find that when I do, it's not fun. Yeah. Like, it's so far. I think what I find, I realize now that I enjoyed playing a game at its highest levels. Yeah. And I don't really like the street version. (laughs) Like, the the lower, it just doesn't. It also, to me, I feel like you have so many goals outside of it now that bringing yourself back into it is like... I could be doing a distraction with my from t- the next thing. Yeah, because yeah. I think what's most common about us, like people like us, is that we're driven to accomplish the next thing, not to linger where we have been. Exactly. When things stop kind of serving us, is that it's like on the next mountain. Yeah. I don't go back to that mountain just for fun. I climb the next mountain. Yeah, that's that's such a good way to put it. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I guess to lay the landscape of what life was like. You're playing professional sports. You're living a pretty good life and yeah yeah. how did that go yes exactly (laughs) fair all right so um i mean probably like most athletes i played all these sports when i was a kid um i think most of us um you know started when we were little 
Uh, there's only a few guys I know that, or and women that started really late, and you can do that at catch up. But most of us were pretty committed to our sports at an early age. Uh, I'm really clear to say that I had a very fortunate upbringing in sports. Um, it was a very healthy experience for me, and I know that that's not always the case. But I had great coaches, um, lots of great parents. Like you were raised by a village, mm-hmm. something I reflect on all the time. You had a lot of parents. Yeah. Uh, if you stepped out of line, you heard it, and it wasn't always your parent telling you. <laughs> right. Um, you know, you had multiple grandparents even. Um, I'm still going to funerals of, like, my friend's grandparents because they were so important to our life. Um, my parents were very supportive. I had a great family life. I just had a really fortunate childhood. Um, got a chance to play at higher levels. I remember probably the most important point was moving from that like fully amateur hockey and lacrosse to like the junior team, whether it was junior A or junior B tier two, all of a sudden you just started to play a lot more and Mm -hmm. you got better really fast. And you started to leave some of your really good friends behind who weren't there. Um, So I did all that. I had the opportunity to play either hockey or lacrosse in, in college. I didn't get drafted to the OHL. Um, everybody kind of assumed, I had pretty good marks in school, everybody assumed I was going to go to college. Um, played for the World Championships, World Junior Championships in lacrosse, and had kind of a weird experience where some of the players didn't go to win because they had their provincial championship waiting for them at home, mm-hmm. and they wanted to win that. And that was like a defining moment where I was like, holy, how can you not try to win a gold medal at the World Games to stay healthy for a provincial, like that math just didn't add up to me. Mm-hmm. And because of that, I ended up um, turning down my, I had a full ride to Cornell and uh, the London Knights had just had the worst season in the history of the CHL. <laughs> they they uh, only won six games. Oh, wow. And so they came recruiting me to kind of come as a, not an overager, but like post-draft and, um, and come and help turn around the team. So I did that. Okay. Yeah. And then played um, played for a year at Western. So stopped playing lacrosse entirely. Right. Focused on hockey entirely. Um, played my three years in London. It was awesome. We ended up losing the provincials, like the provincial finals, that my last year. And then the team went on, though. Like, we did. We turned it around. Right, right, And now, right. I mean... I mean- Look what you've done. Look They're at the history now. Yeah. Nobody remembers us, <laughs> which is perfect. Yeah. Um, but, it, you know, even the Hunters came in and bought it. Oh, okay. Right? And, that, and then the arena and all these things led to them being this epic uh, franchise now. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> I was at Western um, going to university while I was playing for the London Knights and then uh, decided to go there for one year instead of going straight to pro because there was the Fichu Cup, so like the World Championship of University Sports. Mm-hmm. And so we had this chance to go to Slovakia and play for Team Canada. So did that, awesome. Went to the East Coast League, had the concussion bug. Uh, East Coast League was like fun. The hockey was great, better than I expected. Really? Uh, yeah, it was great. Okay. Even when it was bad, it was still good. Yeah, yeah. Because um, you really got to love it too, to... Yeah, you're not making much. You're yeah. on a bus the whole time. I lived in Huntington, West Virginia. So I always say, like, now, looking back, the experience of living in Huntington, West Virginia was way more valuable than a year of playing semi-pro hockey. And so it gave me that. And a right, lot of players right. say that to go to Europe and stuff, too, right? Mm-hmm. So I would say, like, 
fairly normal kind of career upbringing for you know for somebody who got the chance to play all the way up to the highest levels of their sport. Mm-hmm. Uh, had a really bad concussion. Had to take a year off. Um, when I got cleared to go back and play instead of going back to hockey, I chose lacrosse. Hadn't played for five years. Figured I could pick it up. <laughs> maybe a little arrogant to think I could just jump back in and play pro. <laughs> uh, worked out to be exactly that. Uh, but it allowed me to have a job Monday to Friday, and hockey wouldn't. So then I didn't feel like I was falling behind on career path. Exactly. I was getting some experience so that if I had to make that switch back, you know, it wouldn't be a big change. It would just be that I'd stop playing lacrosse and keep working. Mm-hmm. And that's um, pretty right. much how it went, not entirely. Right, right. <laughs> cool. So now you've been through all these sports. You played high-level hockey and then got back in after five years of putting the stick down, I guess. You picked it back up and then... Was the how long did it take from that point when you picked up the stick to starting to play in the NLL? So I think I have four weeks. So I came in mid season. Um, came in mid season. Uh, it was like maybe end of February. Um, I had to get in. I think three or four games in order to be able to play in the playoffs. So they put me in, and I actually scored the fastest first goal in career history. Like I got on the floor for the opening face-off, scored in the first three and a half seconds. Ball came straight to me, I turned around, ran it on the floor and scored. And I'm a defenseman. <laughs> so it was, Welcome it was, back. Yeah, it was pretty hilarious. Yeah, um, Yeah. so then I got, uh, we made it all the way through that year, so I ended up getting like six or seven games in and uh, and then started playing summer ball again. And So really just picked up right where I left off. Cool. Found out that you couldn't use wooden sticks anymore. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like some rules had changed while I was gone. <laughs> Showed up in work socks to the first training camp, and all the guys were like, look at this guy. I think they were calling me the fossil. <laughs> <laughs> this should be interesting, right? Yeah. 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 Oh, that's sweet. So then, <clears throat> at that point, being able to have a 9-to-5 job and play a sport that at one time you loved, I'm sure that love came back into things. I don't, again, I see that life's pretty good at this point in, in your journey, right? Yeah, life is great. So, San Jose Sharks bought my team. I moved to Northern California. Um, they got us our green cards, but before then, I could only work for them because they were my employer. So, I ended up doing community development work for the San Jose Sharks. Like, okay. So, I literally had a cubicle next to Sharky, like the mascot. Right. Um, right. Went and watched all the games. So, I played. At the arena and worked at the arena. It was great. Um, and then from there, when I got my green card, I started working for STX, who makes all the equipment for lacrosse. Right. So Monday to Friday, I traveled around selling it and doing like workshops and introducing new groups of uh, and towns to the sport of lacrosse. And then went on the field and played as a professional on the weekends. Sweet. It was awesome. Yeah. yeah. And I lived in Northern California. I was getting yeah. paid. It was. And this podcast is supposed to be about adversity and challenge. <laughs> yeah, that's and right. I feel like now that that's what's uh, coming next. So I, I just, from, from the outside, though, and when I looked up online, there really isn't, in, in, in different talks you've done and whatnot, and, or at least in the articles I've read, there's, you, don't, you haven't really opened up that or put that much detail into the adversities you had. It's listed, though, which seems like crazy stuff you went through from, again, a pretty good... Yeah. Life? Yeah, right? And and now do today. Maybe I wasn't looking in the, the right spots, but there wasn't uh, too much on the... 
It didn't dwell on it too much. Yeah, yeah, you didn't. Yeah. It's funny because that's actually what post-traumatic growth looks like. We'll probably talk about that. Yeah, for sure. People that just don't focus on the problem, they focus on what came, mm-hmm. what value they got out of their problem. Right. And I think that, that yeah, I'm, I'm like a textbook case of that. So, cool. so uh, training to go back to the season, 2009. So it's September. Um, season starts in December. Training camp starts in November. So, you know, six or eight weeks out of the season. Probably carrying a little extra weight from the summertime. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I would run up the mountains. So in San Jose, there's a set of mountains between San Jose and the ocean. And I would use those to train. So like literally running up a mountain one day and then wake up on a Saturday morning, try to get off the couch and stumble across the floor, um, think that I'm having a stroke, like fall on my face in the living room. And uh, I, had, um, I had had the swine flu. Uh, earlier that year in the summertime, and then it turned out I had the West Nile virus. <laughs> wow. Um, and I'd gotten over both of those things relatively easily, but my immune system had gone haywire. And so I had this post viral autoimmune disease that started to eat my peripheral nervous system. So I lost the ability to walk um, in the course of 48 hours. Wow. Yeah. So <laughs> uh, huge. Blow yeah. out of nowhere. Yeah, yeah. So we were uh, we had had our first baby already. Wyatt, he was born in California. He's American. Uh, he, he's uh, always cheering for the USA in the Olympics. <laughs> so we have this nice little Team Canada, Team USA thing always. Uh, my wife was pregnant. Jennifer was pregnant with our second, and uh, all of a sudden, like everything just blew up. I wasn't going to be an athlete. There was twenty five percent chance that you die from it, and. Uh, they said that it was going to take, if we could stop it, it would take six months to a year to relearn how to walk. And there's a chance that I would never walk normally again. And this was 24 hours. This wasn't like... like boom. Saturday, like Friday afternoon, finished moving into a new condominium. Saturday morning, relaxing. Now that the move is done, get up and go to the bathroom and my whole life changed. Fire department had to come and literally break the door down and take me off to the hospital. Wow. Yeah. Holy smokes. In that moment were you at that point i'm sure or who knows were those the th- stuff we're going to talk about down the road here with plasticity did that come into play at all instantly like did you have any type of almost innate reaction that was that was beneficial to what was going to yeah, occur so i reflect all the time that i think sports served me really well not in that it developed me as an athlete but it taught me lessons of like how to be hopeful how to stay focused on the positives, but still learn the lessons from the last shift, the last mistake. Mm-hmm. You know, um, how to be resilient. You know, Part of what attracted me to the London Knights was that they had just had the worst season in history. And so that was a neat project to try and turn a team around, mm-hmm. as opposed to just playing on like a really high-performing team. Right. Um, so I think I had, sports had developed a lot of that character uh, in me. And so that showed up the first few days... I was probably, like, most people probably thought it was weird because I was in such an okay mood even though everything was kind of falling down around yeah. me. Um, I think that's just who I was. But then I had a nurse actually say to me, you know, you better get used to this. You're going to be like this for a long time. Wow. And then it was like, oh, shit. Pardon me. Yeah, that's okay. That's okay. <laughs> um, she told me to focus on what was wrong. And so I did because she was kind of the expert in that situation, right? You give people a lot of credibility based on where they are. Mm-hmm. And so I went back to the bed in the hospital and 
uh, focused on all the things that were I was losing and uh, kind of had this like reality check not just realistic view but a, probably the pessimistic view mm-hmm. which isn't my nature yeah. right yeah was there value in that at that point <laughs> well there was I think specifically because it made me feel so negative and that was so foreign that when so a different nurse came in as the story goes and said you you know don't worry about this sweetheart we're going to get you back on your feet in no time and so those opposing views if I hadn't been given the really negative one, she would have just said kind of what I was thinking. Mm-hmm. But I didn't really pay attention to the fact that the other end of the spectrum did exist right. for some people. Right. Uh, and so I say all the time, too, I had this grouchy old man in the bed next to me in the one room. And he really helped, too, because he was focused on all the things that were wrong. And I was trying to stay as positive as I could. And so, you know, if it had just been another person, if it had just been another nurse... If it hadn't been made so obvious, the two full ends of the spectrum, um, I might not have seen all the value of choosing one versus the other. And so I chose to try and be as positive as I could, and mm-hmm. everything changed from there. Right. We, I mean, we've talked about it on this podcast many times. There's a, there's a time and a place to to grieve and whatnot, and but it's also I think there was value in having those negative thoughts for a bit. It's, this is reality, like accepting that reality or, or however you want to word it, that then, and did you notice right away the benefits too? Was Were oh, there like benefits boom, health-wise? Um, immediately. So I still get goosebumps just when yeah. I think of it. Yeah. Because um, I knew immediately. I was like, oh, right. I need to feel like this. I can't let, you know, somebody outside of my circle change how I play, mm-hmm. right? Like how I behave, how I act. Uh, so I needed to like learn how to take control of that again. And this is where you're like transitioning what you learned in sports into the world. Right. And that isn't always a smooth transition, right? We don't always value how much we've learned in the context of sport that's really designed to make us handle life better but nobody's really connected the dots. Exactly. You end up stumbling through that process of like evolving this character trait into action outside of your arena. And so I was forced to do it real quickly. Uh, so I took a real, so I, it was, I had to relearn how to walk. Like couldn't walk to the bathroom um, on a walker, right? And then on the crutches and... You know, I literally was running a mountain one day, and we were measuring how far I could walk by the number of hallway tiles in the floor. Oh. I was, like, trying to get to 10, and then trying to get to 10 and back. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and then it was like, can you do one minute on the treadmill walking at the lowest speed? <laughs> like, wow. Like just slow everything that you do. Same approach. Same approach to everything. Mm-hmm. Just so much slower and such smaller increments. Yeah. It's a little bit like getting back in shape as a 42-year-old ex-athlete. <laughs> right. Um, Worse than the extra summer weight that you have to yeah, bring Yeah, the worst version of that. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And at that, at that point where there, and this is a question I always ask, was there a point through the days like that where a bit of a nihilistic mindset maybe dropped in or some dark days. And then the classic is then how do you pull yourself out of that? Yeah. So um, one thing I'm really clear, because my title now in the company is Chief Happiness Officer. Mm -hmm. And so to make sure people know that I'm not full of shit, you have to be honest about the fact that 
it still means that there's tons of challenges and there are dark days, but the difference is that you don't let dark moments turn into dark days and you don't let dark days turn into dark weeks or months. Mm-hmm. That you embrace them for what they are and and you um, understand the value of those emotions. Uh, you don't diminish that, but you also don't allow it to become pervasive. So it's like the difference between everybody has a bit of anxiety. Everybody feels anxious about things. But can you interject when you feel a little bit anxious to have it less likely to become anxiety, you know, pervasive anxiety. Um, Because all of those things have a value to us. They're trying to tell us something. Um, But when they take control of us, as opposed to us being the master of them, Mm -hmm. it's when they become unhealthy. And that's not always in our control. Obviously, right, of course, right? yeah. yeah. To be really clear to say yeah. that, but yeah, there was dark days in the hospital. You know, um, lots of dark times. But and even when I got home, there was one day. So I ended up walking to the hospital after six weeks, right? So I practiced gratitude every day to try and be in a happier mood. Um, used it on other people. Really, just hacked into the process of healing and did it in six weeks instead of six months to a year. Mm-hmm. But then. I kind of expected that as quickly as I could get the first leg out of it, that I would get the second leg out of it. And it, I couldn't maintain that same speed. So there was a point after like four months where I'm walking around this lap in the park and so frustrated. And, you know, why am I not running yet? Mm-hmm. It, it becoming a little bit ungrateful. Like, instead of being grateful for being able to walk... I was a little ungrateful for not being able to run. Right, right. And so I tried and <laughs> epic face plant in the park and then tried again and like fell again and tried again and tried again. It was one of those like kept falling until my knees and my elbows were bleeding mm-hmm. just to try and understand why I couldn't. Um, and that was good. That was important. Right. And, and that's going back to what you said, how those emotions are still important to have. Yeah, don't. And my wife wrote an article for HBR where it was happiness is not the absence of negative feelings. And it doesn't mean that they don't exist. It just means that you keep them in a good balance and that you allow them to the extent that they are purposeful and then don't let them stick around much longer than that to the extent that you can. And so all sadness, you know, if we were to just... We would never grieve for people. We would never remember the people we lost or the people who helped us along the way if we didn't validate the negative feelings of missing those things, right? Right. Uh, Everything exists for a reason. Uh, That's kind of the nature of evolution. Right. And so it's just the trick is to focus on what's the purpose of this. Mm -hmm. What's the purpose of this emotion? How can I use it? Everybody's gotten pissed off after a loss. Like the seven game series is a great example of that. Sometimes you need to lose a couple games. Oh, yeah. And it really uh, locks in what's required to win the next four or the next two or whatever it is. These conversations, I've realized when you say something that is kind, that ha- like you said, happiness isn't the absence of, of anger or sadness, or to me, that would just instantly give me hope that. And I hope that this is the same for everyone, that, okay, I can still be happy even though I'm pissed off right now or, I'm, or I lost this and I feel this way. And it doesn't, and I think, 
I'm, I'm not, again, I, I like to try and, you know, think through things and I, I'm, I try to watch myself now when I do things. And I've almost realized with some anxiety that, that I've had, and I feel like we can, we can assume that, you know, if we're alone for a certain amount of time, there was, there was some days when I was quite anxious that if I'm, I was alone, I would think, oh my gosh, I'm depressed because I'm alone. It's like, right. it's okay to, it's okay to feel alone. It's okay being to... Being alone and being isolated are different. Yes. You can yeah. be physically alone and not feel isolated. Mm-hmm. Or you can be amongst a ton of people and just not have valuable contact or, or connection and then feel isolated, even though you're actually not physically isolated. Right. They're different. Yeah. 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 And I think that's, you're going back to what you said, it's, that's similar, right? Like, yeah, I'm upset. That doesn't mean I'm unhappy, which that doesn't mean I'm depressed, which doesn't mean I'm, right? Yeah. And it's that You have to question effect. your assumptions. Yeah. Yeah. And I've, yeah. and one thing I've, from not as much of an academic way, I guess on my, on my own practice is what I've been doing is just watching my, myself, like trying to watch my own habits and it's changed my life. Why am I doing this? Or why am I doing that? A conversation the other day with uh, my girlfriend, it was, we're looking through the, the popular page on Instagram and I'm thinking, look back on, on maybe my parents' relationship, whatever, or our ancestors, you go even further back, and you have a relationship with someone, how would it have been okay if that person was just looking at multiple men or women? It's like right, a catalog know? full of other humans. Yes, <laughs> that you just you look at and then are, I think it would, I don't want to say innate, but I'm sure a natural part in our brain or something would compare. Just You try to stop yourself from comparing yourself right. to someone else, it would be impossible. Yep, just natural brain mechanisms. Yeah, All right, so anyways, I just... I start watching myself on, on Instagram and whatnot. Is that okay? Yeah. Yeah. Mindfulness, um, you know, really asks you to stop and pay attention in the moment to anything. And part of that is what is my body telling me about my brain right now? Like what is my physical state telling me about my mental state, my psychological state? You know, when you get goosebumps, when you feel tense, when you feel awkward, when you start sweating, All those things tell you about an emotion you might be experiencing. And by paying attention to what might be causing that, you get really self-aware and you understand how you interact with the world. It's not all your fault either. Most of it's just human. Like most of it's just neuroscience, the way we're wired. But becoming aware of it allows you to work towards mastering it Mm -hmm. and not being slave to it. Right. We were taught that all through sports, but it never broken down like that Mm -hmm. in my in my experience anyways. Probably more so at the Olympic level. They get into that a little bit more and sports psychology tiptoes towards it. Fundamentally, it's just neuroscience. Cool. I like that. So then from, from those (laughs) six weeks of recovery back into the, back into this journey here. Yeah. You, you, you fast forwarded your recovery process, which is awesome. So six weeks instead of the potential year that they had told you, the, the nurse that said, you likely never walk again. You managed to prove her wrong. So then where, what was it back to sport? What was the plan after that? Yeah, so we, uh, so I used gratitude, recording what I was grateful for and sharing with people when I was grateful for what they Had did. Had you ever done that before? Never, no. I found, I went looking for how to take control of my mood and found the research. Was a gentleman by the name of Dr. Robert Emmons is who I found. He's kind of like the... Uh, the grandfather of gratitude research. Okay. Uh, he did all the fundamental research. And um, the trick about it is that it's really simple. The simplest way to ch- kind of change your brain chemistry towards the positive is to take a moment and reflect on something you're grateful for. And by doing that once, you change what's called your state, your current state. 
and that's state gratitude. So you're feeling grateful in this moment, but by practicing it frequently, you actually build the trait. So you become grateful, not just in this moment, but generally. Um, and so you develop it as a skill. And so that's kind of, I created this new currency in my life that unlocked more resources and, and wasted less time and energy on the negative side. And then that's what helped me walk faster. Um, still, like I said, I had a long way to go and I wouldn't go back to being a, a professional athlete. That was pretty clear. Um, and I couldn't go back to my job because it required so much traveling. So I ended up going back to uh, Laurier. So we moved back to Canada, where we became grateful for grandma and grandpas and <laughs> Canadian healthcare and right. all sorts of stuff. Uh, so we moved back to Canada with our two little American kids, and I went to Laurier to study psychology. I uh, really wanted to understand why. Like, wanted to understand why what I had experienced happens and why it doesn't happen at different times. And that's where I found this uh, research around post-traumatic growth versus post-traumatic stress disorder. And uh, post-traumatic stress, um, one of the hallmarks is that uh, at the one-year point, people would do anything to go back in time and, and erase that event if they could. And often they still feel like they're experiencing it, like it's still happening to them. Mm -hmm. uh, people with post-traumatic growth wouldn't go back and change that negative event in their life because they feel like they've improved so much. Like they've learned because of the event. And so they actually become oddly grateful for it because it's created an opportunity for them that they wouldn't have had otherwise. So exactly, you can become grateful for negative things uh, if you change the, your frame of mind thinking about it. So we wanted to understand what were the common traits uh, that predicted people to be more likely to have post-traumatic growth or more likely to have post-traumatic stress. And so we found these uh, psychological traits. Uh, we call them hero traits now. There was quite a bit of research about them. Hope, self-efficacy, resilience, and optimism, gratitude, empathy, mindfulness. And uh, if you have the highest levels of those traits, so part of you is, uh, or part of your development of those traits is genetically predisposed, you know, anywhere from 40 to 60%. And anywhere from 40 to 50% is learnable, trainable. And then what they say is about 10% is supported by your environment okay but a big portion of your ability to develop those traits is in your control and anyone can do it and if you do it it doesn't make negative events in your life go away it just helps you handle them better mm -hmm. and it helps you stay present and and see the opportunity that they offer you um, see what see what there is to learn like there are things you can learn in a losing season that you cannot learn in a winning season Exactly. Right. You don't learn how to be a loser. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and why you might not want to be that really deeply. <laughs> yeah. Right. So like I talk about a, if a team wins every game in a season, they get an A plus for winning, but they get an F for losing. And life isn't all about winning. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of times you lose. You don't get every job. You don't get every loan. You don't win every argument. You've got to learn how to take a beating. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so you need balance. You need to have both. So what is it that you implement into your life then to build those yeah. traits? Because when we chatted before, one thing I'll never forget that I, I share with people now is you don't 
you don't just pick up a book and read something or, or hear a motivational talk. This is what I love that, you know, inspiration doesn't create that change. You have to apply it. You don't, you said, which was fun. It's like, oh, I'm, I'm resilient now or I'm more yeah. empathetic now, right? Bing. Yeah. <laughs> and that just doesn't happen. So what is it that, that does allow those to be, you know, strengthen your, those, those characteristics in someone um, that isn't exactly consciously realized maybe? Yeah, so... Um, we look really closely at how people develop habits because really this is about habit formation and then it comes down to what's called neuroplasticity which is how does your brain change because of the effort that you put into building a habit to amplify or accelerate that process of creating a habit so that things become more likely to happen whether you're doing it consciously or unconsciously and so there's this piece where you need to understand something right so you need to understand clearly what a concept is or isn't. What does resilience actually mean? What is hope? So um, what is optimism? Optimism is a generally positive outlook on life in the, you know, in the future. Uh, okay, so that's great. Now I know what optimism is. What does that look like functionally? Like when am I behaving optimistically or pessimistically? So optimism, for example, has you focus on what you do have and remain focused on what you can do with what you do have. Pessimism is focused on what's missing and what you can't do because of what's missing. Mm -hmm. At some point when there's enough things missing, the likelihood is that you just don't try at all. And that's what a pessimistic viewpoint leads to, inaction. An optimistic viewpoint says, maybe I don't have all the ingredients I need to make the perfect sandwich, but I've still got enough ingredients to make a sandwich and eat. And so instead of not eating at all because I'm missing a few key ingredients, I'm going to make what I can and enjoy it. And so, you know, becoming self-aware as to when am I expressing a more pessimistic view or when are other people. So that's like the next stage is seeing it in the world. And then uh, a little bit like changing any habit. First, you have to be aware of it. Um, you have to forgive yourself when you get it wrong. And then you have to correct it. And then you have to do it enough times that you start to get momentum in a new direction. Mm -hmm. And so you literally build a new neural pathway to um, habituate this new trait. And so even just catching yourself like, oh, shit, that was super pessimistic. And saying to that person, I'm sorry I said that. I actually, what's healthier would be, let's think of it like this. And so you have to like have this tug of war with yourself mm -hmm. to, to extinguish this old habit or way of being and create a new more positive one that and that in, internal kind of battle is it's almost very stoic super right? stoic and yeah. i feel as i've learned talking about the awareness pieces and i don't want to speak for everyone but i feel with where we are with technology we are so, we have so many reasons not to be aware and we yeah. have so many opportunities to to not be aware because it sucks to think about things we don't want to think about yeah so now it's and we're going so fast yeah we get in the car and we don't just think and drive we have to call someone because we might think of things we don't want to think about right? all the like, time oh, i turn the radio off I'm yeah like, let me just leave some space to just either pay attention to where i am or let things come up mm-hmm 
Exactly. And I found now I found so much value in that. And so I've watched myself and I will be, it might be subconscious, but there'll be something I'm not happy with and I don't know exactly what it is. So I'll reach for my phone yeah. and want to, oh, I'll just look at Twitter. And, Let me and, just keep myself busy. Yes. <laughs> and, it's, and now I realize, no, sit there and now feel this out. And then, like you said, have that tug of war with dealing with that mentally. And then, okay, then you can relax instead of just putting blinders on of all yeah. these issues. And then you, and then when you can't block it out anymore, whatever that is that I'm not willing to think about, at some point you can't, you, your phone won't help. Like you have to deal with that issue. Like yeah. life You're just, just pushing it down the road, you know, yeah. kicking it down the road. And that makes, to me, that would, that would be like, that's why we're less and less resilient is why we never even from our thoughts to our actions, we just have all these, you know, blockers on and, and yeah, like we should move on from things, right? So negative things happen. We should move on from them. But the likelihood if we don't take a bit of time and self-reflect on what happened, what was our part to play in it, um, the likelihood is that we're going to repeat those things because we haven't deconstructed them to say like, well, what, what happened? And then what are the signs that I should look for to see if that's happening again in the future? If we don't unpack things at least a little bit, they're just going to happen again. And then they get bigger until we unpack them and take the lesson. Uh, sports did a good job of doing that too. Like, just think about the the introduction of video. Right. Where now you can, like, a good goalie knows all the probabilities of where somebody's going to shoot. You know how likely they are to pass or shoot. What they look like when they're pretending they're going to pass, but they're going to shoot. <laughs> That's all because of video. Because the number of times that they can see it in their own real life is amplified by the number of times that they can review it in video. Mm-hmm. And the goalies who do that will be better than the ones that don't. You know, it, it has to be the case, assuming that people can learn. So doing that in life, like taking that skill that was developed in sport and moving it into life um, is how you grow and develop. One of the biggest gifts that my illness gave me was time. Because I was so busy going on to the next season and doing the next thing and being who I already was, that there wasn't enough time to decide if I wanted to be somebody or something different or I wanted to do something differently. You get in this, like, you're, like, on this treadmill. And, you know, if you get running on the treadmill for too long, you don't notice all the other machines that are there to work out the different parts of your body. And uh, moving really, really slow, like, one of the things you notice when you get sick, you probably notice this, is life goes on for everybody else. And so that leaves you alone. A lot because people go off to work and you know the team goes back on the road and you're stuck at home and uh, learning to see that time as a gift and use it in a healthy way led to all of this like seeing the opportunity to go back to university for something I cared about as opposed to just going because it was what I was supposed to be doing earlier in my life mm-hmm. um, that was one of the real gifts and that allowed for self-reflection and for self-improvement on the i guess how did where how did things turn into yeah like how did things turn into where we are today sitting here with these hats on and you've been you're you're new going off of that that identity you're you know i would say an all-star in that league and and you have the accolades to show that you were as an athlete and you have that identity and today we sit here and as you said the chief happiness officer is how did that transpire from everything so uh, one of the things while I was sick, whenever you're faced with your own mortality, it's very common that people think, like really reflect on how they're going to spend their time because you've been proven that it's, it can be very finite. 
So what am I wasting my time on? And what am I not doing that I want to be doing? And one of my reflections was when I was a kid, you know when people ask you what you're going to be when you grow up or what are you going to do? And I would say, I'm going to make people happy. <laughs> yeah, it sounds ridiculous, right? And then uh, that's what I decided to do. So when I found all the research that already existed, a little bit to your comment earlier about how do you take new knowledge and move it into action, right? I found the biggest weakness was not that the research had been done. There was still lots of research to be done, but there there was a good foundation. What was missing was people putting it into application. And so uh, instead of pursuing my PhD and kind of going really narrow uh, at adding more research, we started the company to take the research, add to it, but move it into application. So we started by building a version of Instagram, essentially, called the Smile Epidemic, that was to build gratitude. So to help people do it for 30 days and develop a, a habit, so to move from being grateful in the moment to developing the trait of gratitude. But we had no idea how to turn that into a business because it's expensive. Mm -hmm. uh, but we didn't want to charge individual people for that. And then this company came to us and said, uh, what if we taught our customer service reps to be more grateful? They'd probably be in a better mood, and then our experience with our customers would probably improve. And we're like, yes, great. <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Let's do that. <laughs> and so we built, uh, we changed the company into what's now called plasticity. So plasticity, the word, means changeable. It means plastic, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so we focus on creating positive change in organizations and schools. And, uh, and so we use a lot of data. We collect a lot of data to find out what the current state is of a group of people, whether that be a department or a whole organization or a school or a classroom, and then identify where the most positive changes could matter and could happen. Um, and then focus around things like developing emotion, uh, emotional intelligence, mindfulness, optimism to improve the health and happiness of people while they work towards common goals. Um, and people pay us to do it. So sorry, people don't pay us, organizations pay us to uh, collect data and then consult and help them improve as an organization um, where people can be healthier and happier at work or at school and more work gets done. And have you seen, or could you give an example of, of this application done? It, it, you worked with a company and the outcome, and maybe even statistically, if you could give an example of this is what we implemented, this is where people were able to, or how people were able to change, and then this is the benefit to the company. Yeah. yeah so um, there's lots of different kind of uh, sub-examples, but if things were already good, an example would be, can we be just as high-performing, but with a healthier amount of wear and tear on our people, right? That's an mm -hmm. actual, that's an improvement where you're going to exactly. get more longevity out of people that don't burn out. Um, there are times when things are okay and both performance and people's health and well-being could improve or be under fire less. And then there's times when things are bad <laughs> yeah. and things need to change drastically to get better, uh, both in the performance and in people's health and well-being. Um, one of the projects we're the most proud of is uh, partnering with the school board here, Waterloo Region District School Board. And they had a hunch that um, in their executive leadership team, senior leadership team, that improving people's relationships um, would matter to performance as an organization, but also their goal, which was 
helping kids to thrive, right? Mm. To learn what they need and thrive. And uh, they brought us in, and, and over the course of five years, we've developed a ton of um, professional development, leadership development, programs and practices and policies that predict people having a healthier, happier experience of working there and predict better learning outcomes. And so we ended up developing a classroom version of this work called the Hero Generation so that now we work with the adults through plasticity and we work with students through the Hero Generation. And so it's almost like you have the customers and the company, right, the organization, all working together to create this language of hope and mindfulness and resilience. And uh, it, it has a huge, huge impact. Uh, one of the most important things is um, a lot of times these traits will help you move the needle a bit under healthy times, but when they really shine the most is when the shit hits the fan. Mm-hmm. So it's when you're under a lot of stress, but you're still performing well and you bounce back faster. And so it's like saving uh, the downtime um, where it doesn't change the fact that those things happen in an organization, right? Um, it's just that everybody handles them better. Right. And so um, it, it ends up being productivity and performance. And then the X factor is, um, is called citizenship behaviors. And that's the likelihood that people go above and beyond. And so when a workplace is really healthy and people believe in the mission, then they typically do more than the minimum. And when, a, when an organization is unhealthy, people typically reduce their amount of work to be towards the minimum requirements Mm -hmm. and so it really adds up if if everybody's just doing the minimum versus a few people are going above and beyond versus everybody is going above or beyond it's the difference between winning seasons and losing seasons Mm -hmm. um yes that's what we do (laughs) that's a way to and so that that's an like, I love that stuff. How do you get that across to someone? And let's go back to both of our older cultures of the, the jock and the stuck-up egotistical culture of, of sport. But similarly, in certain companies and businesses where you have people that are thinking, that's not going to do anything. I'm just going to keep working. Like, that's when people don't believe or buy in. How do you, what is your message or how do you implement that or convince people that, hey, no, this is real? And, yeah. and I guess for me, selfishly, it would be how do you apply that in the sporting world? Yep. So uh, at first, I spent a lot of time, pardon me, trying to convince the people who don't believe this that it's right. And then what I realized was there was just as many people in any given room who actually believe that that could be right and are willing to try. And so I was so busy focusing on trying to convince the hard ones that I didn't pay attention to the ones who were ready to start. And so there was a point in probably the end of the second year that we were doing this, so we're six years in now, that we stopped trying so hard to convince the negative ones and just really embraced the ones who were ready to try. And, um, and then you, sh- you convince the other ones through success. So when the testimonial from a school who says, like, that's incredible. It's saving us sick days and, and people are showing up early and doing more work and the number of kids who are coming down to the principal's office is cut in half and the severity of things like it's undeniable that those are all things that take up time and energy. And, and so what can you be doing with that newly found time and energy uh, when you remove a bunch of the negative things? That's the best way to convince the naysayers. 
And uh, what we find is there's this, this descriptor of an organization who has kind of uh, using all the wrong policies to just get predictability and to be able to forecast accurately, and it's predictably mediocre. And so they reduce a lot of the negative volatility, but they're leaving a ton on the table in the exchange. And so like, uh, you can imagine a team, you might put in a system, right? And that system doesn't score you more goals, um, but it predictably has less goals scored against. Uh, if you were to apply systems constantly, you would take the creativity and the joy out of the game because you weren't allowed to decide what the best thing to do was in the moment. You only go out and robotically play the system. Mm -hmm. A lot of sports teams that do that. Exactly. Right? It's actually not a bad way to improve when you're doing poorly. It's to dirt, turn it up a little bit. But then finding the right combination in sports between predictably what's right statistically and then how do we maximize the potential of all the people that we have. That's it's the exact same thing. I remember having a coach one time. Uh, we could never beat St. Catharines. It was like in minor hockey. Right. And they would like crush us. And uh, every system we had, we just, they outplayed us. And then he decided to go with four forwards and one defenseman. And they didn't have a way to play that. And we destroyed them. <laughs> no way. Yeah. And then it changed everything because they didn't expect to beat us anymore. And we didn't expect to lose to them anymore. And it was like we had to adjust the system and then adjust our play. And, uh, and so that's a lot like how this works. It's like a new couple of plays in the playbook. Mm -hmm. um, if you don't have the most talent, you better be in the best shape. Right. This is psychological fitness. So how do we maximize the psychological fitness of a group of people to thrive under more conditions? And then if we have talent and if we have hard work and all those other things, they're all going to matter more. Mm -hmm. But it's like a new spectrum that can be developed that has been underutilized. That's a cool way to look at it. Like on a human performance side is you have, you have this talent, but if you do the things we just talked about and, and, or maybe change your system a little bit, you can, you can enhance that 20%. You can unlock more. Yeah, yeah, unlock more by, yeah, like almost by doing less, but just doing it in a different way. Like, so a lot of this is based on the um, contagious nature of mood. So play this one out. You are, you're in the playoffs, and you're playing in an arena that has no hometown fans, right? Mm -hmm. um, versus an arena packed with raving fans who are cheering and adding positive energy to the game, right? And what is that? How does that impact the visiting team? How does that impact the you know the home team? Then imagine a team of where the fans are all negative towards the home team. How does that impact them, mm -hmm. right? This is really about capturing that. The customers are the fans, the players are the employees, the managers are the coaches, the senior leadership is the ownership. Um, how do you develop raving fans and employee base that can play under a wider set of conditions and perform at a higher level? And that's fundamentally what professional sports are for mm -hmm. in the process of making money. Right, and we're right. just saying make money and make people happy too. You can do both. <laughs> Sweet.
And how do you, is that how you've replaced your competitiveness that you had yeah. before is now, let's see how many people I can make happier. That's yeah. what's that filled the void of, of that yeah. compete. And, uh, and it's hard. I just wrote on LinkedIn today, like being an outlier, picking a new industry, you know, you know, picking something where a lot of people don't believe in it yet. That's mm -hmm. just new and emerging in a market. All those things are difficult. But even for us, then, then I countered with, but getting a note from one person who says, like, I had a snowplow driver the other day say to me, your work gives me hope. Wow. You know, that's huge. Mm -hmm. We had a kid who came back from one of the, uh, this was just the last couple of days, a kid who comes back and says to the teacher, well, that changed my life. So, like, if those things become currency, so mm -hmm. is our work meaningful? And how many people can we positively impact with our work? Um, it's a little bit like how many fans can we make jump out of their seat, right? And want to come back the next time and make their life a little bit happier. How many kids in a hospital can we go and make smile? Mm -hmm. uh, that's what we did when we were players. And so this is just the maturation of that into adult life, I think. Cool. Wow. And in, in conclusion, we'll end it. We've been building this up, but you also are a world record holder. <laughs> so how did that become an idea with the, the gratitude wall? Yeah, so one of the ways, uh, I mean, there's a ton of people who are just, if they know about all the gratitude research and science, um, that they'll do it. And so one of the ways that you can like start this work is to create a gratitude wall, where in your office or your workspace, people just put up little notes of all the things that they're grateful for. Um, and so my wife, uh, Jennifer, is um, her background is all in PR, et cetera. And we found ourselves in this office over at Communitech where we had this massive wall. It was like 45 or 50 feet long and 25 feet tall. And so we decided to try and set the world record for the number of gratitude notes captured in a single day. And I'm pretty sure it was like 6,112. Uh, and wow. it had to be within an eight-hour period of time. So, like, we had another two or 3,000 that we'd collected before, and they didn't count. Okay. And so we ended up um, covering this whole wall in eight hours. And it spells the word gratitude out of the gratitude notes and stuff. And, uh, yeah, so that's the world record. And the, the idea would be that it promotes other people to try it, too. Right. Because it's undeniable when you do it. It kickstarts that process of creating a new habit and quiets some of the negative conversations that might happen. Mm -hmm. But it also creates this like physical space that's just positive. Like you'll find people standing there reading it. And the one number one note somebody wrote, it was one of the basketball players from town, and his thing that he was grateful for was his smoking hot wife. Right? <laughs> and somebody else, it's coffee. And so it was like simple things, but then somebody else wrote like no more cancer. Wow. Like, so it's really profound sometimes and other times it's just undeniably simple and meaningful and it just it kind of sparks a conversation and a way of thinking for people yeah mm. yes yeah, so we have the world record for the most gratitude posts Sweet. <laughs> and the most interesting ones too it sounds yeah. like yeah that's right yeah <laughs> uh, is is fitness still you're obviously in good shape is what do you do well, today yeah, and don't say the... that too easily <laughs> <laughs> and how's the uh i guess what are there any lingering issues today that you yeah. deal with? And yep. So it still comes back. Um, we actually found out that it's probably something different. So 
per, it's still um, an auto, uh, like an autoimmune disorder, but it looks like it's my allergic response system that thinks it's allergic to different parts of my body or different oh. things in my body that's not. But I just have too many of these cells in my immune system. So I still end up on a cane once in a while. Uh, I might have to be in bed for a few days, usually like two or three times a year. Never longer than two or three weeks and usually only a week. Um, for the longest time, I didn't work out at all. Like not at all. And I just started again. Nice. I think part of it was I didn't want it to get taken away from me again. Mm-hmm. And so if I didn't do it, you couldn't take it away. Uh, okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which is pretty broken. Yeah. But human way to think about it. Um, and then I recognized that so much of my fitness was goal-oriented. Like, I loved being in shape because it made me a better player and helped me win. Well, if there's nothing to win, <laughs> I'm probably not going to put myself through this piece. Yeah. And I didn't fall in love with the process of being healthy, of being physically healthy. So I'm trying to do that again now. Come and on. so I just I, I got a membership and started going back to the gym. Plus, I have three kids. So I have... Um, Five-year-old, nine-year-old, and eleven-year-old, and their lives are pretty busy. Oh yeah, I can and so imagine. it's easy to make a lot of excuses. But I hadn't found a way to weave it back into my life, and so I started going. And uh, I'll get on the treadmill, and it's super depressing. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it's faster than the story we heard, though, which is yeah. which is good. Yeah, but I just keep telling myself, just go back, just go back, keep going. It's just a habit you have to get back into. Mm-hmm. Find out what you love about it. Right, right. And diminish the reasons to not go. <laughs> cool. Find the reasons to go. Yeah. Right, right. That's awesome. Well, I, uh, yeah, that's incredible. Is there anything else you wanted to add in our no, chat? Well, or? just um, for the listeners, start really thinking about what you're learning in one context and what's the real reason to learn it. Because when we, t- and if you're coaching kids, uh, take the extra time to teach them that. Hard work at hockey or volleyball or running or dancing, whatever you're putting your time into as a kid, is teaching you how to be a healthy adult. And as kids get older towards university, I think we need to take more responsibility for like, hey, you're not going to be a player forever. So this work is supposed to mature into you being a healthy not athlete anymore. Right, right. (laughs) And uh, I think too many times we leave that up to chance and too many athletes um, have a period of time that's longer than it needs to be where they're not thriving again and that transition shouldn't be easy right mm-hmm. but it doesn't need to be so difficult or unrealistic that it can happen at all and I think too many of our athletes are lingering in an unhealthy place for too long because as, as adults as the mentors and the leaders in sport we aren't taking the responsibility for translating at that last 10% to show them that it's actually about life, not just about sports. And that, I think that's our responsibility. That brings us to the end of another Heroic Minds podcast. I look forward to hearing from you. I've been getting a lot of awesome emails. I encourage feedback, constructive criticisms. Shoot me an email. My email's in the link of this episode. And feel free to leave a positive review if you're enjoying these podcasts. All right. I'm Ben Finelli. This is the Heroic Minds Podcast. We'll talk again soon.